doing activity. Here you go. This requires your involvement. I want you to raise your hand if you have never had an enemy or someone you just did not jihad with in life. Raise that raise your hand. Perfect. So we're all on the same page. We all have people in this life that we walk cross paths with that, you know, personality don't really jive well together and and we get it. We've all been there, right? It doesn't it doesn't feel right to go to church and think about the people you don't like, right? I want to talk to you bring those books. No, we want to think about that kind of, of thing. So I want to think about the enemies and those don't like kind of people, even even if it was way back 15, 20 years ago, or even in elementary school when you were a small child, you could probably think, I've been many of us in here, can think of that one person that would just mean you, you did not have a good relationship with, and you still kind of have that little grudge inside your heart. You'll never forget. And we all have those. Whatever it is, maybe it's not recent, maybe it's a long time ago. I want you to think that you you go to town and you, you need to uh, go get some groceries from Walmart. If you see their car parked at Walmart, in your mind, you're like, oh, well, we just need to go Kroger today. We're going to go on Kroger to get our groceries because I don't want to cross paths with that person. Or I got to get groceries for supper tonight. We go to Save-A-Lot and get groceries, and we see that person walking to Save-A-Lot, and we're like, you know, guys, let's just get there for you tonight. We're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're just going to avoid that confrontation altogether because it's the awkwardness. That might be there. You see them walking down the aisle, and like, oh, there they are. You act like you need this item, so you don't need to make eye contact. We're, we're human, and that's what we do. That's natural. We avoid that confrontation or that awkwardness between people that we have some type of friction with. Regardless of how what level that is, that's what we naturally do. And it would be okay for us to go back and think in this scene. Now we're getting to the story. Paul and Barnabas don't do that. They're about to go straight into the line of fire. They go right back into the scene where they are hated. Into the cities where they are, they tried to murder them. Instead of avoiding that confrontation, we're going to see this Paul and this Barnabas guy in there, and, and this is at the close of their first missionary journey. They have, uh, have a few journeys that they go on, right, where they hit city to city to city, and they return back to where they started. Well, they're headed back to Antioch. But on the way, when they head back to Antioch, they could have just made a straight beeline to Antioch, but instead, they decided to go all the way back to some cities that they had visited to check in on some things, to face the awkwardness, to face the confrontation. So let's watch. Let's watch what happens here. Let's read our uh, our passage today, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 14, and we're starting in verse 21. Last week we saw Paul get stoned by people in the city of Lystra uh, because they did not like what was what he had to say. Right? What happened um, in this city, and 
essentially they turn these common people into murderers just by the words they said. They stoned Paul until they thought he was dead. They threw large rocks surrounding him until the point where he was completely unconscious that he was dead. And it was, all, it was a sure way of capital punishment. But it wasn't capital punishment because there was no trial involved. There was no jury involved at all. So it was murder. It was a sure way of murdering someone because if you have a crowd of 20, 30, 40, 50 people looking at it, and they were all sure that he was dead. Well, they stopped, and he was drugged, uh, dragged out of town, and completely unconscious. And ultimately, God protected him. God kept him alive. Paul got up, and the next day he traveled right back to the town. I mean, just had such uh, bravery and courage and craziness that he went right back to the place where people were trying to murder him. And this is what starts the story of where we are today. If you look at uh, verse 19 of chapter 14, it tells us um, exactly what kind of happened. We'll start there and I'll read. So it says, Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And when they went over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, Paul got up, went back into the town, and the next day he left with Barnabas for Derby, another city, just, just down the road. And then he went to Derby, and this is what happens in Derby, first verse, ready? Or 21st verse. After they had preached the gospel in that town, Derby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. That's all it says about the city of Derby. They preached the gospel and they made many disciples. On this missionary journey, this is the only place that they do not get, or we do not have evidence that they were uh, attacked verbally or physically for the presentation of the gospel and sharing of the good news. But they continued their work in Derby. And then they said, okay, we got this done. It's time to head back home. Here's what they do. All right, here's what they did. Uh, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in their faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When they appointed the elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. After they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italian. From there, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. After they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them, and that He opened the doors of faith, of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a considerable amount of time with the disciples. So in this, let me pray real quick now we're ready for pray the words that God speaks to us through his words specifically. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, um, this scene in the story of Paul and Barnabas and Father. Father, I pray that we uh, we see these words jump out of the page in such a way that it speaks
leads to us with application in our lives and principles in our lives that strengthens our walk with you. Father, may your spirit speak loud to Jesus. Amen. So as they began, they preached the gospel in Derby. Derby was effective, so they went back home. And on the way back home, they made big stops. And where they started. They went to the confrontation. They went to the awkwardness that would be there. And ultimately, they could have went to the place where they would be murdered. If someone had just thought they had murdered you, the last place I would go would be there. But that's not how these men work. That's not how they talk. He says this. He said this in verse 22. Uh, they were in Iconium, Lystra, and Antioch, strengthening the purpose. Here's the purpose. So why did they go back to these towns? Why, what would be in their minds? The purpose is to strengthen the disciples by encouraging them to continue in their faith and telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. This is an impressive feeling. They passed through the cities they didn't visit before with the core purpose of strengthening and encouraging Christians in those cities. Paul and Barnabas wanted to do more than to convert people. Now listen to this. It's important that we see this in evangelism. They wanted to stay, Paul and Barnabas were missionaries and they wanted to do more than simply convert people to believe in Jesus Christ. They did not just want to convert, but they wanted to disciple. You see, Jesus told us not to be an evangelist for Jesus, not to be converters, but he tells, he tells us to go and make disciples. To go and make disciples is more than telling somebody about Jesus and say, hey, I hope you got it. God bless you. But to disciple someone, to be a disciple maker, is for us to build relationships, to follow up and follow through in what we promise to be a Christian, a guide for that person. Follow us to be mentors, Christian mentors for others. You see, when we get it, when our heart, in our hearts, when we accept Jesus, it's not just okay, now I need to focus on me and my walk. That's true. But part of that is focusing on others and their walk. Because as you grow closer to the Lord, God wants you to use your story as your testimony to help others along. Right? We aren't just supposed to climb to the top by ourselves and then climb closer and closer to God. We're supposed to pull others up with us in the process. That's Christian leadership. That's Christian disciple making. And we are supposed to be the ones that do that. We're supposed to all be the ministers. And Paul and Barnabas set that tone and set that example for us right here. They want to make disciples. If you think that being a Christian is easy and you're, you're a fresh convert, you're new in the faith, then think again because that's the opposite of the truth. Because it's hard. We have to live life. Christians need strengthening. Christians need encouragement, just like Paul and Barnabas show, to continue in their faith. We've all been to a point in our life where we get a crossroads, where we ran into a wall, 
need that nudge to get over it. We just need that support. And sometimes we run into that wall and we just stop right there. This is too hard. I can't do this. I just want to settle. I just want to be content with this moment in my life and live the way I want to live. Instead of saying, hey, I need some help. I need that nudge. I need that support team, that support group, that church family to be those people that walk that faith with me. That's what church is for. That's why Paul and Barnabas are so committed to the follow-up and the building up of the church. And we're going to see what they do. So, in verse 22, we start to see what happens. Verse 23 starts. It says, when they had appointed elders, so, so how do they strengthen up the church? They go back to the church. They appointed elders for them at every church and prayed with fasting. And they committed them to the Lord, the Lord in whom they had believed. So their first step, I know what needs to happen. I go back and they set up the church in a way that is an effective administration in the church. Leadership that has to be there. The appointing of elders. Elders in the church are uh, providing Christian guidance and leadership. And we'll see in uh, in First Timothy and in Titus, it tells us the basic qualifications of an elder. And uh, it's something that you can go and you can study and you can look at. But the basis of these are the... Uh, John, do you have a scripture? Oh, awesome. There you go. Okay. Let's look at Let's look at this, okay? It says, this same is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, which is an elder, he desires a noble work. An overseer must therefore be above reproach, husbandable, like self-control, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive trader, not a bully, not a not but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy, must manage his household. Uh, confidently and have his children under control with all dignity. We can read that one there. That. Um, as a pastor, that's the same word as, as elder. Um, have his children under control. Don't judge me. The Lord's supposed to be the elder, right? Uh, we were trying to get to run the aisle. At any rate, those are all the basic qualifications of an elder. We're not going to go through that means we can keep on going through those basic scriptural demands uh, 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 guidelines, I should say, of, of being an elder. But these are basic leaders. Leadership that is presented up in the church that Paul and Barnabas saw. That Paul and Barnabas are leaving. And Paul and Barnabas aren't going to be one of the people to go to. Right? So it has to be someone there that immediately, this is fresh. This is just weeks, right? This is fresh. The church is brand new. So they need some people to be brought up and say, okay, if you're having trouble, you're having issues, go to the elders. If you need prayer, go to the elders. If you see the need on the back of your bulletin that we reference all the time. If uh, if anyone is a sick, let him call the elders to church, let the prayer room and the oil and thank the Lord. We see there's so many things that elders do and guidance and leadership in the church that Paul and Barnabas saw. So they knew it was essential. They need to strengthen the church, so it'd be strengthened from the top down. Paul and Barnabas saw that. And they said, okay, first thing we're going to do is we're going to make sure that this is going to be effective. And we can leave that 
like, and there's still be some type of leadership in place. So they followed up, and they appointed leaders in every church, and I say in every church in every city, there was essentially a gathering of people. They didn't find buildings, you know, that was not like today. They found a gathering of people and appointed the elders that were there, and they committed them to the Lord, which they had believed. Because they were careful that they weren't seen as over the elders. They committed the elders to the Lord and the churches to the Lord because that is who they believe and that is who they should believe in. The church was all, uh, church belongs to Jesus. And they were adamant that they understood that. The church belongs to Jesus. So verse 24, then they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia, and after they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adalia. It is so it is so important that we understand why Luke was 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 pointing these things out. Why, why was Luke's uh, in in the writing of the scriptures right? Why was he going to tell every city and every stop? Like he said, they made their way back home and they stopped through a few towns. I think when he was divinely inspired, God would know that there would be so many uh, naysayers out there that would prove, try to prove scripture wrong. And in this time, the way he laid this, this, this out in the map of their journey is historically accurate for the cities and the locations they were in and the time frame that they were in as well. Because you can go, if you went a century later, it would not be accurate. But in the time frame they were in, it was accurate. It's important to do that. Because you can discredit any story based on time frames and historical evidence. Let me give you an example. Who in here has watched the movie Titanic? Okay, who watched it in the past year? You're addicted to it. Someone's 25 years old or however. <laughs> okay, so in the movie Titanic, Jack um, said he talks about going back and uh, going back ice fishing in Lake Wissico or the Wissico. Y'all remember that thing, Lake Wissica? I don't remember that. But he's talking to his son, Rose. And he talks about Lake Wissota. There you go. And, uh, and, and then he used to always go back ice fishing. Well, we can prove that story wrong. Because the Titanic sank in 1912, and Lake Wissota was man made in 1917. So all you Titanic lovers, explain. <laughs> I discredit the entire story right there. Right? That's just an easy way of uh, uh, people trying to go and discredit stories based on time frames. Well, Luke's story matches up just perfect. And he wanted to put that in there so that he can prove these stories to be true and historically accurate. Okay, so when we see all those, the costumes, where's the outlet, we see what's important that was in there. So from there, they sailed back to Antioch, where they'd been uh, committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. <laughs> After they arrived, right, so they go back to Antioch, not Antioch of Pisidia, but Antioch of Caesarea, Caesarea, whatever. So they go all the way back to that Antioch, <clears throat> and they gathered the church together. They reported on everything that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. They brought together and said, here's what's happened. Here's what happened in all of these cities. I, I can't wait to tell you. 
But the first thing that he said, or the first thing that's talked about here, is that they opened the faith, the door of faith to the Gentiles. The amazing work that God did. Look what God did. Look at these people getting saved. This is amazing. Look what God is doing. Is what Paul and Barnabas says, and that's so impressive. And so powerful to see that because if this was me, if this were me in this scene, if I was Paul, I would first step up there and say, y'all ain't going to believe what I've been through. If you want, I'm going to tell you what I went through. First, I'm telling you about what God's done. I'm going to tell you that I was almost murdered by a mob in Lystra. I was ran out of town by another mob that was trying to kill me in Antioch of Pisidia. I was talking about this crazy guy named Bar Jesus that I ran into and I despise his name, but I'd rather say I don't like saying his name because he's the son of Jesus and that's not right. So we got blinded him to straighten him out. I would have mentioned John Mark that he left town or left the journey and he, he, he bailed out on us. I would talk about all the things that I did. I feel like that's probably what I've done. Because I'm telling you, what a journey this has been and what an experience that I've had. That's what we all do when we come back from a trip. Let me show you these pictures. I saw this, and I did this, and I did all these things. That's not what Paul does. Paul steps up and says, let me tell you of the amazing things that God has done. God is saving, has saved so many lives, so many souls. God is doing amazing work. And then I would have finished the entire story for me complaining about how I got called Hermes instead of Zeus. Barnabas was Zeus and I would have been called Hermes. Anyway, I, I think that's funny when you put up call. And then the last verse is this, and this is important that it ends this way before we look at the next chapter. And it's not just a transitional verse. It says, and they spent a considerable amount of time with the disciples. They're in Antioch. They, they spent a considerable amount of time with the disciples. We can, we, we can just oversee that. That's just a simple transitional uh, 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 scripture before we get into the next scene, the next story that's about to happen. That's not what it is. We're talking about this discipleship, this mentorship that should happen. Right? And I try to speak to the kids on their terms, um, but it's the importance of having somebody doing life with you. When you're in a new scene, in a new lifestyle, when you give your heart to Christ, and you are a new Christian, you are just to be left to figure it out on your own. Somebody just doesn't throw a pile of books and say, bring this, and this is going to show you how to be a Christian, right? And they don't just give a Bible and say, I hope you do well in figuring this out. A strong community, Christian community, lives life, does life together. Figure it out together. That's what Paul and Barnes will show us. They spent a considerable amount of time. If you've ever started a new job, if you ever start a new job anywhere, in most places, it's an effective workplace, you are usually assigned a mentor. You are usually assigned to a place in a mentorship program. Because in order for you to transition into that new job effectively and be effective in the job that you are required to complete, you guys have to have somebody guide you and show you how to do it right. 
have a team that's your odds to support you in doing it right. The same thing goes for life. The same thing goes for us right now. We have to do life together. We are called to do life together as Christians. Not simply take this book and read it. It's worked for me. If you, did, if you wanted to teach your kid to ride a bike, you want to teach your child to ride a bike, you don't just say, here's a bicycle, and here's a pamphlet on how to ride a bicycle. Good luck. What we do, we're right there with the child, teaching them the bell, holding them up. When they land and they start to fall, we get them back up, we hold them over. When they crash and they wreck, we pick them up and say, it's all right. You're going to get it. You're going to get it. I'll back up on there. We're going to do this. We're going to figure it out. We're there again. We're going to fall, we're going to tip, we're going to, we're going to crash and burn. It's going to hurt. But God says you can't do it alone, and I know that's going to happen, and I need you to be there for one another. You've got to have somebody with you to pick you up. And we as Christians, we're called to be mentors for one another. And if we're at a time when we need somebody, we got to have a place to go. we got to have that somebody. That's why the church exists. There's no, there's no um, step-by-step instructions that's going to help you do it by itself. Jesus knew that. The best learning comes from when life runs up against another life. We live life together. We do it together. Jesus modeled that. He modeled that by calling those 12 men, those 12 disciples that he lived life together, he didn't just say, I'm going to do this and y'all stay about 100 feet away from me, stay out of my way. Right? He lived life with those people. He did life together. He prayed, but showed them how to pray. I want to read this quote to you. It's, a, it's, it's, it's deep, but listen close. I, I, there's so much, uh, I guess it's so profound that I love it, and I think it'll speak to you too. Here's what, here's what's uh, uh, from a book called Mentoring Permission. Uh, uh, the author's name is Crowd, and says this. He says this through the through the disciples' continual exposure to who Jesus was, what he did, and what he said, Jesus intended them to discern and absorb his vision, mindset, and his mode of operation. I'll read that line again. Jesus intended them to discern and to absorb his vision. Jesus' mindset and the mode of operation. He desired them to become so saturated with the influences arising from his example and his teaching, his attitude, his actions, his anointing, and every single area of their lives that would be impacted for greater likeness to himself. That's what living life together should be like. That's what being a mentor should look like. We as Christians have people that look up to us. We show people how to live, whether we are intended to it or not. As a Christian, we're shown. The example we have helps mold others uh, to how we live up to it. There's, there's a saying that goes like this. You win, you win people, or you convert people, there it is. You convert people to what you convert people with. 
two, what you convert people with. If you use uh, uh, aggression and fear to win somebody to the Lord, then they're going to understand Jesus' love as this fearful, uh, aggressive person. If you win somebody to Christ through love, through patience, through kindness, they're going to understand and they're going to live life based on patience, love, and kindness. The model we set and the example we set is you. So, with all that being said, the understanding in this that we can pull from this is a lot. But I'm going to pull down to this. People need people. People need people. You need somebody and somebody needs you. But people are messy. People are broken. People are hurt. You are messy. You are broken. You are hurt. People still need people. Broken people need broken people. Messy people need messy people. Hurting people need hurt people. We have to be there for one another. God knew how hard this life would be. If we try to do it alone, we're probably alone. That's why we're here. So this passage today, this scripture today does anything. It should encourage us to draw closer together as a church, to pull people in that need it, and to love one another more. But above all that, people need people. The foundation is this. Before all that, the foundation is that people need Jesus. People need Jesus. People need people that love Jesus. And people that love Jesus don't need people that love Jesus. We've got to have a love for Christ that overflows in anything we do. So I'll tell you this today. If you're here with us today, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've been struggling. You've been on the fence. You've been living on the outside, but not on the inside. I encourage you to see. Don't be, don't be content with that. Don't be content and satisfied with being with Lord. We can make that step toward and we can be that person that loves Jesus so much. We can be that mentor to others. We can be that person. And take that step closer in our faith. The gospel is simply this. That if you love Jesus with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, that you commit with your voice and in your heart that you love Jesus. You will be saved. You will be saved. But the point is, don't leave it there. Continue to search to love Christ more. Because people need you. Jesus, God does not need you. But he wants you. And he wants you to love you. I'm going to pray for you and we're going to sing. And I encourage you today to draw closer to them as we sing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your, your goodness, your kindness, your patience with us broken people. That we have a, a life that is a winding road of, of a mess, Father. And that most people don't have a clue what we go through. But you do. And you love us anyway. You love us through our messes. You love us through our poor decisions. And when we turn our back on you, you're always waiting for us to turn out. You love us anyway. So Father, today, help us to draw closer to you. Help us to draw closer to one another so that the advancement of your kingdom is at the highest position.